welcome to this episode of The Square. Today we're going to continue our conversation on human-centric design by taking a focused look on interiors. I'm joined by Raven Parson, who is one of our workplace strategists. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And Shane Brown, who is an interior designer and project manager. Thanks for being here, Shane. Hi. So before we jump in on the conversation about um, focusing on human-centric design post-COVID, I want to know a little bit more about you all. So tell me a little bit about um, why you do what you do. Tell me, uh, of all the different jobs out there that you could be doing, why design? It's because I love human behavior. I am a nosy person. I love <laughs> no. I want to know what people are doing. I want to understand what they're doing. And with design, it allows for you to test human behavior, mm. iterate on it, and really apply strong principles to how um, someone's change of mindset can truly affect their outcome. Um, so I love that. I also love being able to storytell. Mm. And after learning and gathering those insights about human behavior, thinking of the ways to really tell that story and convey that to others who may not have been on that journey yeah. um, is really meaningful to me. Shane? Well, I kind of stumbled into interior design by accident. I was one of those uh, undeclared majors in college. Yep. I thought I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher or maybe business and languages were really interesting. Um, so my first year of college, I took a color theory class and just absolutely loved it. It was such an interesting combination of art and science. It was creative, but it was also really founded in human behavior um, and even some, you know, anatomy of the eye. Um, and from there, I really just kind of proceeded down the interior designer journey. Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is meeting human needs. Um, historically, that means, you know, building out spaces like wellness rooms. It's really building out a well-developed social space for people to thrive and come together. But I think now it, it steps further than that. It's the spaces to really be able to dive and connect with nature. Mm. It's the spaces where you truly are there to be able to get natural sunlight and work alone. It's those small spaces in between larger collaboration areas where you're truly able to meet um, in a more intimate setting, but still feel a part of the rest of the work community. So when we focus on meeting those true human needs, the ones that are detailed, the ones that um, we've experienced working from home, I think that that truly can translate into some very meaningful spaces moving forward. You know, one of the things that we talked about several weeks ago um, with Lindsay was the value of place. Yes. And I'm curious how that balances out when you, when you want to have this human-centric design and this focus on the needs that humans have, but also want to balance that with just safety. Absolutely. I mean, we've been talking a lot about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, and anybody that studied psychology is familiar with that. Um, and safety is one of those primary needs. You kind of have to feel safe in a space to be able to really engage with it and be able to fulfill higher needs. Um, so really that's one of the primaries. It's gonna be about getting people to feel comfortable through signage, through visual cues, knowing that um, wherever they are, the people that are um, taking care of the space, that are cleaning, um, really have their best interest in mind and are gonna look out for them and make sure that um, you know, everybody is taken care of. And, and that'll give everybody a comfort level in coming back and being able to fully engage and be okay being around people again. 
Okay, so Shane, then tell me a little bit about empathetic design, because that's something else I've been hearing a lot about. So interestingly enough, um, you know, as designers, we're trained to think about space and experience through other people's shoes, through a day in the life of someone else's experience. And I think that's really come to the forefront in this kind of post-pandemic or kind of what remains after the pandemic is really thinking about each individual's experience and how it might differ and being able to apply that to design solutions that really react to everyone and embrace and make everyone feel comfortable and safe. So then Raven, when you think about what people have been through over the last six to nine months, potentially even a year before people actually mm -hmm. all get back in the office, um, what does that mean in terms of human centric design when you're trying to consider those needs for the people returning to the office and they've had, th their needs aren't the same that they were when they right. left a year ago. Now they've had potentially up to a year of, of this isolation and mm -hmm. certainly all the external factors. How does that change how you design for their needs? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, it's expecting a shift in the frequency of how you interact and connect with employees in the office. Um, you know, you, you really can't take away fully the experience of working from home and this idea of an increase in remote working. Mm -hmm. um, and it really does open the door for a, a newfound fluid worker model that's here to stay. And with that, it comes a lot of design considerations in the office. Um, it's the expectation of more team areas to be able to touch down and meet when need be. It's also to a more individual level considering those focus areas and how can um, employees really build their own hub and their own pod within that office um, to get the work that they need to get done mm -hmm. but still feel that closeness and be able to access the resources that they need to be able to access. Shane, any thoughts? I think one one thing that I'd bring about too, kind of a topic that's been coming up quite a bit is balancing those real estate considerations is what does that look like? Does that mean more space or less space? And you know, the answer is, is there, it really is going to be highly individualized to the organization, the types of work people are doing um, to really make sure that we're addressing all their needs and so that the space supports the way that people are trying to work. Um, and people are gonna be coming to the office for different reasons. Um, somebody uh, that has been living at home by themselves may be coming for team meetings and social interaction. Somebody like myself with some small children around have very noisy coworkers. <laughs> and I would love to be able to come to the office to do focus heads down work. And I think we're gonna see that across a lot of organizations that you know, everybody's needs are highly individualized and this space is going to have to be thought about in a way to support all those various needs. It's funny, I, I, was, I was thinking back to the conversation um, that we've had uh, on human-centric design with education and one of the things that has become uh, a big consideration in empathetic design for the kids is the social aspect. Yes. Because you'd have, you know, the cafeteria, you have recreation, you have even just in the classroom the social cues that they that they usually pick up on from each other and that's kind of developing them as they become adults. Right. It's interesting because even the adults still have to have that input from each mm -hmm. other. But those those social opportunities are gonna be different now because you know, socially we could put four or five people around the table and have a conversation, have lunch, and now we have to be spread out at least six feet and right. we're wearing masks and it's just a different interaction. Are there ways that with human-centric design we can accommodate those different needs? 
I definitely think so. I think the biggest thing is technology. Um, you know, when we're having this introduction of more remote working versus a, a more fluid worker model that could work for certain companies, I think that also takes rigorous technology mm -hmm. to create a seamless experience. Um, you know, we've all experienced working from home, having that isolation, having that lack of social connection. And it's not just the connections of a scheduled meeting and being able to catch up before you really start the agenda. Right. It's being able to have technology that has the same type of water cooler effect that you would have in the office. Yeah. It's those that create that seamless connection to be able to say, hey, how are you doing? You know, yeah. let's catch up without it feeling so formal when otherwise it would have been informal. So I would say at the forefront of that would be a development of technology and it's training in that technology so that everyone is speaking the same language. They know the process of being able to use it and they know how to use it to to the value of what it needs to be for. Shane, I think also mentally and behaviorally, there's gonna be a physical difference because like you said, we're used to, to being at home and you have your small coworkers with you. And we're used now, instead of working in something that might be an open area with a lot of different people in it, I'm used to working in like a guest room, right? Or at the kitchen table. And it's something that's more confined. And I, I'll be curious to see if that means that more kind of hoteling pops up that is in line with kind of what we experience at home. It's just we don't have the coworkers with us <laughs> that are five and six and 12, how, whatever age they are running around. Or barking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is, do you see that being something that's gonna affect design in a, in a more permanent manner moving forward? It definitely will. Um, there is still a little bit of a fear factor around those shared spaces just from mm. a disease transmission standpoint. So I think it's something that people will slowly ease back into and not necessarily all come back to the office and rush to hang out around an island in a break room or rush to all cram into like a, a room that was designed for two people. Um, but it's definitely something where I think we're all becoming used to moving around during the day, having different settings, being able to go outside, island, dining table, bedroom, I've got to take a call, um, and, and kind of having those movements throughout the day. And I think it's really going to be important that this space supports that continued movement because it's good for our health and our wellness too. What do you think is something that was missing from the office pre-COVID that now, because of COVID, it has brought a change that is really good? Yeah, so I think, uh, one, it's the idea of a fluid worker. It's mm -hmm. really pushed that, that notion that we are able to bounce from different work environments and get our work done successfully and collaborate the way we need to um, in order to get the work um, to get completed. So that's one. I think another thing is that there's now a need for those specialty spaces. When the context permits, um, you know, to Shane's point, when real estate is feasible, it's the idea that we need to now have a conversation about spaces that truly meet a human need outside of just when you're sick or when you want to chat with a coworker. How are you really interfacing with the rest of the world while mm. still being able to successfully work in that office? In thinking through not just COVID, but in general, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that interior designers face? So I think one of our biggest challenges is kind of staying current with what's happening in the world 
and making sure that spaces reflect the people that are using them. So we're doing research constantly, we're diving into things like epidemiology and psychology and sociology um, and a lot of behavioral sciences just to understand how people interact with each other because the more we understand people, the better the space performs for the companies that we're designing for. Raven, any thoughts? Yeah, I 100% agree. I would say the biggest thing is quantitative data. It's hmm. really understanding the employee experience. Um, it's being able to collect a, a piece of a story and applying that in design considerations and decisions. So I would say, you know, data is king, of course. Qualitative data truly does tell a good story, but um, moving forward, considering an increasing quantitative data will really help uh, give us that big scope and that big picture. What do you think is one thing that maybe thinking through more of just specifically along the interior design side of things, what do you think is one thing that clients misunderstand about interior designers or the process? That Rome is built in a day. <laughs> um, you know, that you can just get everything out and change is just an easy thing. And specifically, I would say change management wise, mm. um, the idea that big changes that impact an entire workforce can just easily be communicated yeah. and, and you're assuming that the actions and the buy-in and the behavior will follow suit. Um, and, and that's a misconception. Change is hard. Yeah. And change when it comes to uh, communicating that to each individual employee, but expecting a communal buy-in, um, it, it takes a lot of intensive strategy. It takes a lot of empathy and really understanding how employees feel in that space and then uh, laying out a strategy that truly does bring about um, insight. It sounds like being very intentional is important. There. Absolutely, very intentional and applying that with intuitive design. Shane, what do you think? I couldn't agree more. I think the world is more complex now than it ever has been. Um, and I know I'm asked frequently to say, so what ratio should we use for assigned spaces? Or um, what's the square foot per person that we should allocate for mm. this? And uh, that's not a question that, I mean, that's not the first question that you should ask or try to address. There's so much more that we should understand about a space and that a client should be thinking about when they're making some of these big real estate decisions, really thinking about the people, kind of that human-centric design that we've been talking about, um, and thinking about long-term activities and adaptability and change, because we know there will be change. All right, so let's talk about the two of you as designers then. Um, what, Looking back at school, and we'll start with you, Shane, um, what do you think is the biggest misconception about interior design or what, what surprised you with actually becoming an interior designer once you were in the business that you didn't know when you were in school? Interesting. Um, so I'd say I had a pretty good technical understanding of what I would be doing in terms of drawing and finishes and codes. Mm -hmm. um, but what I don't think I was ready for was the communication that took place so you've got all these ideas, you generate the ideas, you generate the drawings, but you really have to be able to communicate those and tell the story and explain fairly complex ideas to people. 
um, and help them visualize and understand what you're trying to accomplish and kind of what the goals of the project are. That's really what kind of pulled me more into the project management side is once I, I got a taste for that and started that, that's actually my favorite part of the process is that engagement with clients and really getting to understand them and know them and then be able to kind of take them along that journey. Raven? Yeah, it, it very similar to, to me as well. Um, I would say that my misconception was that um, it was strictly about the technical and mm -hmm. it was getting the space built for that particular person or that client or that user. Um, but now it's completely different. My outlook is a lot more about telling that story as well and, and almost providing that true why as to why this space is yes. even being constructed. Sure. Um, I, I truly feel like it always has to go back to the user and the benefit of the user and really defining a clear cut journey that you're expecting those users to have. Um, and I just, I never really learned that or, or thought about that um, when I first got into the industry. Was there, was there a time that you can remember or, or the first thing it just kind of clicked, like you get your eyes lighting up and it just, there was an experience or something you read that made you want to see the world a little bit differently and kind of pull the curtain back and realize there's intention behind what's in front of us and then made oh, yeah. you want to be a designer? Absolutely. It happened in college, close to the end of my college career. Um, I had a professor that had asked us to do a pretty much traditional uh, construction interior design project, uh, do the construction documents, tell the story of the mission statement. Um, but she charged us to also create a user journey map to document why are we designing this space? Mm. What is the user gonna do in here? How are they feeling? Um, what are they gonna feel as they tra transition from one adjacent space to the other? And so that amongst other experiences, but yeah. that one really did hit home for me to consider, wow, like there, there's a bigger story to tell here and there's more qualifications that you kind of need to lay out yeah. to, you know, to tell your client, this is what it is for this reason. <laughs> I, I was at one point a uh, IT, a computer science major. Okay. I was a communications yeah. major. I, I mean, I kind of, I ran the gamut of all kinds of different things before <laughs> we finally settled on, on film. So Shane, tell me a little bit about what excites you over the next five to 10 years. Um, I'm really excited that the conversation is shifting um, toward people and wellness and health and how people are experiencing space um, and kind of away from some of those metric driven decisions that we talked about earlier. Um, there's nothing more exciting than being able to roll up your sleeves and talk to a client about their future and growth and where they want their organization to go and then be able to deliver them a space that really helps take them there um, along that journey. Mm. Raven? Yeah, I, I think it's really exciting in the next five to 10 years to see innovation all being about improving the employee experience, improving how they feel, um, outfitting spaces that suit the needs of the functions of different business units, mm -hmm. and really show showcasing spaces that allow for human needs to be put on the forefront. Um, as well as technology too. You know, the importance of it is, is that, again, fluid working and remote working, I, I really don't see that going away, 
but being able to use the tools that we have to enhance the way that we can connect with one another, uh, both in office and elsewhere, is something that I really want to be able to see. Well, thank you both so much for being here. I really appreciate thank it. It's a great conversation. I'm sure we will continue to have. And thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Square. If you're watching in the video version, make sure you check out the audio version. And in the description below, we'll have links to some more resources. Thank you so much. Thank you.